You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, the journalist and broadcaster Simon Brook joins me to flick through the day's papers. Plus, we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. I looked in through the windows of the handsome apartments. A family is eating dinner on this autumn night. At the base of the new apartment buildings, there was lots of life in shops, cafes and more restaurants. It was urbanism done well and we'll find out what city he's talking about. Our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, tells us about the week's weird and wonderful news stories too. We learned this week that John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, and his son, John F. Kennedy Jr., are both, in fact, still dead. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. In the United States, after a day-long standoff, Democrats set aside divisions between progressives and centrists to pass a $1 trillion package of highway, broadband and other infrastructure improvements, sending it on to President Joe Biden to sign into law. His administration will now oversee the biggest upgrade of America's transportation infrastructure in a generation, which he's promised will create jobs and boost US competitiveness. Ethiopia's military has asked former soldiers to rejoin the army as it attempts to hold off a rebel advance. The appeal comes as forces from the northern region of Tigray continue to push towards the capital, Addis Ababa. The US embassy has advised American citizens to leave Ethiopia as soon as possible. Meanwhile, social network Twitter has temporarily disabled its trends section in Ethiopia over threats of physical harm. The drug maker Pfizer says it's developed a pill to treat COVID, which cuts the risk of hospitalisation or death by 89% in vulnerable adults. The drug is intended for use soon after symptoms develop in people at high risk of severe disease. Pfizer says it stopped trials early as the initial results were so positive. And NASA has revealed that four astronauts could leave the International Space Station this weekend before their replacement team arrives to take over. The members of the current mission are due to return to Earth, but their replacement crew's been delayed because of unfavourable weather conditions. I'm Georgina Godwin, and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers, and I'm pleased to say that joining me today is Simon Brook, journalist and former head of broadcasting for the UK's Conservative Party. You're 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 laughing at that because, of course, we're all <laughs> we're about to attack the Conservative Party. Um, welcome, Simon. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, but you did work for the Tories. I did. Yes, absolutely. And I have to say, I regularly did weekends on press office duty. So on a Saturday morning, actually more of a Saturday evening, ready for the Sunday morning Sunday papers, we would get calls from journalists with all kinds of bizarre and shocking uh, stories and we'd have to answer them. And I have to say this incident with the uh, situation with Owen Patterson is the kind of thing that would have kept our phones red hot. No, I'm quite sure. So I, I'd like two things for you. One, to kind of <laughs> set out what this is all about. And, and secondly, to tell me about it from an insider's point of view, how his how that media department would have been trying to spin this. Yeah, so just to 
remind you that the uh, Parliament Standards Committee recommended a 30-day suspension for Owen Paterson, the former uh, Cabinet Minister, because of his work as a paid consultant for two companies, um, Randolph's, Randolph's Laboratories, which um, I suddenly realised I recognised that name because when I came back from Paris, I had to do one of those day two tests, so they do that, for instance, and another company called Lynn's Country Foods. Um, and... Being a lobbyist isn't uh, isn't against the rules, and Owen Paterson did declare his interests in the Register of Members' Financial Interests. Um, the, the question here really is to what extent was he raising issues when he talked to people such as the Food Standards Authority and government departments? To what extent was he raising issues about things like antibiotics in milk, which you'd expect to do in the public interest, an MP uh, talking about something which is a serious uh, uh, situation, a serious concern? That's on the one hand, but also the question is, was he just doing it for, for his own financial gain? He was certainly being well paid by these two companies. And anyway, um, in in its ruling, the committee uh, which looks at these things, um, this Parliamentary Standards Committee, was pretty damning. Uh, it said there's no previous case of paid advocacy has seen so many breaches or such a clear pattern of confusion between private and public interests. So um, that obviously uh, was very embarrassing for him. But, but Owen Paterson, very bullish saying that Catherine Stone, the commissioner, was uh, biased against me, that she had ignored unchallenged witness evidence, all this kind of thing. Uh, so meanwhile, Boris Johnson, the government, number 10 operation, decided this would be a good opportunity to completely rewrite the way that uh, MPs' standards and the way their probity is dis is uh, is viewed and, uh, you know, the way sanctions work against them. So um, new rules were introduced, which coincidentally many people say, would say would be much more favourable to the Tories and to, to Owen Paterson. And Number 10 and the Whip's office insisted, a three-line whip insisted that MPs voted for us. It was very... Politic party political. It was really only the Tories who voted for it. Almost everybody in the opposition parties were against. Even some Tories felt that they couldn't do it, and so they uh, refused. There was a, a junior ministerial resignation as a result. I'm told by two Tory MPs I was talking to, they then got back to their offices and had this barrage of fury from people in in their email boxes saying this is so you know this is such a whitewash. This is so unfair. This really isn't the way uh, politics should happen. Number 10, presumably, got a, a similar sort of whiff of the, that being the way things were going. So on Thursday, less than 24 hours later, there was a humiliating U-turn. And so suddenly uh, the government decided, actually, we're not going to do that after all. We'll, we'll carry out a, more of a, a discussion, make it more uh, cross-party um, and do it in a more sort of conventional way. So, again, I'm told, talking to some Tory MPs and just reading uh, right-wing commentators, there's a sense of fury here that MPs had to promote what was to the almost you know really sort of in, impossible to promote and, and to support and then they had to do a u-turn say actually we don't believe that after all so um yeah i think it's very difficult to spin this and i think what's interesting is there's very little comment from number 10 from tory central office officially anyway talking about this almost all the commentary all the reporting seems to be sort of off the record from mp so they're obviously furious about it um, and I think this is this is really toxic for um, for for Boris Johnson for two reasons. One is that anything to do with Tory sleaze does not look good. Um, 
uh, in the mid 1990s. Uh, it led to uh, sort of the worst defeat the Tories have ever had over a decade in the wilderness because of these allegations of Tory sleaze. And if you've missed the parallels, then John Major, who was Prime Minister at that time, was on the Today programme this morning. So, you know, this really is uh, something that Tories are very, very uh, aware of. And then the other thing is, um, he, uh, num- the number 10 machine, which has, you know, has not spun it at all well, I would say, have really made Tory MPs look really stupid. You know, as I say, one minute they're promoting the unpromotable, defending the un- indefensible, and the next minute they're doing a, a U-turn and having to say, actually, we don't believe that after all. And, of course, the Tory MPs are the ones who decide Boris Johnson's fate as leader. So I think this is really serious for him. Yeah, and, I mean, what it also does is is open the way, then, for a further investigation of funding of his redecoration of his, of his private apartments on Downing Street. Yeah, this is, again, why, as you say, in, in, in news management terms, they should have been very clear on why they were doing this, to, to take the story away from that suggestion, also that suggestions that... Uh, uh, that that um, that holidays have been paid for by other people, all this sort of thing. So interesting. The media coverage either says was Boris Johnson just helping a mate? Was it sort of loyalty and friendship towards Owen Paterson and Paterson and uh, his sort of cohort, or was it for his own? Uh, reasons, you know, uh, sort of slightly sleazy um, uh, self-interest. And and the problem is, yeah, as I say, because there's no clear narrative, no clear message coming from Number 10 or the government, then this is the, the debate that's going to go on. As I say, it doesn't look good for Boris Johnson at all. No, it really doesn't. Uh, should we have something to cheer us up a little <laughs> so, bit? Please, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should join our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, to have a look at the week's weird and wonderful news stories. We learned this week that John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, and his son, John F. Kennedy Jr., are both, in fact, still dead. What can we tell you? The world is cruel. We learned this thanks to the crowd of several hundred hapless dunces who pitched up in Dallas in expectation that either Kennedy or Kennedy Jr., we're a bit hazy on the details on the grounds that we don't care all that much, was going to manifest somehow at Dealey Plaza, site of JFK's assassination in 1963. Or was it? Yes. Yes, it was. The rabble of bewildered bozos who gathered at the grassy knoll were all, we learned, though cannot say we were surprised, both supporters of Donald Trump, 45th President of the United States, and adherents to QAnon, the idiotic conspiracy theory launched a while back by some idle japester on a 4chan message board and now adopted as a faith by legions of angry dingbats, or as Trump thinks of them, his base. We learned that the sketch was that JFK Jr., who died in a plane crash in 1999, or did he? Yes, yes he did. However, JFK Jr. would reappear, possibly with his dad in tow again, whatever, and reinstate Trump as president, the 18th president. There's some whole thing about how everyone since Andrew Johnson has been illegitimate, but once more, and we cannot overstress this, who the hell cares? 
Trump would then step aside for some other doubtless entirely sane reason in favor of JFK Jr., who would then appoint disgraced former national security advisor turned QAnon evangelist Michael Flynn as his vice president, at which point Trump would ascend to become the king of a cohort of seven kings and will revert to the Julian calendar. We're not making this up. This is what these people believe. And yes, we're aware that objectively the foundation myths of all religions are generally at least a bit of a stretch, but come on. Regrettably, because this would, you'll agree, have been quite a story, we learned at the appointed hour of 12.30 Dallas that JFK Jr. had been unaccountably delayed. Possibly by agents of the deep state Antifa and the ghost of Hugo Chavez conniving with the underground child trafficking network Hillary Clinton operates from the basement of a DC area pizza parlor. Possibly by the fact of him having been dead for 22 years. Who knows? Could be anything. But if we have learned anything by now, and can we have the sort of fanfare that precedes a triumphant rhetorical flourish? It's that these people will never learn. Sticking with the happy subject of the fact-resistant and their vexingly dominant influence upon human affairs, we learned, again, that COVID-19 is a morally indifferent force of nature which cares not in the slightest about the political inclinations or ideological virtues of its potential hosts. Listeners still able to bring themselves to consider the Rococo witterings of British Conservative MP, leader of the House of Commons, and the personification of every joke ever made about Englishman Jacob Rees-Mogg, may recall this from a couple of weeks back on why members on his side of Parliament did not need to wear masks. And the advice um, on crowded spaces is with crowded spaces with people that you don't know. We on this side know each other. Now, it may be that the Honourable Gentleman doesn't like mixing with his own side. He may want to keep himself in his personal bubble. He may find uh, the other members of the SNP, who I normally find extraordinarily charming, but he may not take this um, Catholic view of his uh, other Honourable and Right Honourable members, and I sympathise if that is the case, um, but we on this side have a more convivial, fraternal spirit. And Can you guess what happened next? Can you? There will now be a few seconds of soothing music, during which, using your skill and judgement, you may arrive at a hypothesis. Yes, we learned of a major Covid outbreak on the parliamentary estate, resulting in cancellations of tours and other events. Can we get a sad trombone? And we learned that the people of New Zealand cannot tell a bird from a bat. Though we had already learned from watching New Zealand's cricket team over the years that some of their citizens were clearly struggling with the whole bat concept. And their difficulties with birds are perhaps unsurprising when one considers that New Zealand's most famous such creature can't even fly and is therefore essentially a bipedal rat with a beak. 
It is nevertheless startling that, as we learned, the winner of this year's New Zealand Bird of the Year contest, as voted for by the New Zealand public, is the long-tailed bat, which is not by any stretch of the definition a bird. Okay, it has wings and everything, but the fact of a table having legs does not make it a horse. For further explanation, here's Monocle 24's New Zealand desk chief, David Stevens. I've got quite a lot on today. Do I really need to be here for this? David Stevens, thank you. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Very many thanks to Andrew. And this is Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. And Simon Brook is still with me in the studio. Uh, and, of course, Simon, the, the newspapers have been full of COP26, the, the climate uh, summit going on in Glasgow. And one of the stories that, that obviously caught my attention uh, was... Uh, uh, the reporting of the Zimbabwean delegation. So uh, Zimbabwe, a country that is really in huge economic hardship, hired a private jet from Azerbaijan and bought a delegation of over 100 people uh, to COP26. Uh, and then the party spokespeople very gleefully posted photographs on Twitter and Instagram of, um, to, uh, of party officials pushing two huge cases uh, filled to the brim with Johnny Walker and various other forms of alcohol saying, you know, there's going to be a huge party here. And now this was coupled by a big push in Glasgow. People were going around giving out free T-shirts to people. Um, so uh, um, Emerson Munangagwa, the, the new president of Zimbabwe, is known in Zimbabwe just as ED. And well, the T-shirts only had ED on it. Now, if you weren't Zimbabwean, you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> know that who, who this T-shirt was in I erectile dysfunction. Or is that, why is that just coming to my mind? Sorry, just coincident. Yeah. I should tell you that the party symbol is Jongwe, which means cock, uh, or rooster. Uh, rooster. Sorry, um, yes, right, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so these these T-shirts are now being given out free to people in Glasgow and people are being encouraged to say that they um, uh, say that sanctions should be dropped on Zimbabwe. Now, it's very important to point out that sanctions on Zimbabwe are targeted sanctions. They're on a, a very few number of individuals for their human rights violations, including Emerson Mnangagwa, who was the architect of an, the enormous, crocodile. Uh, yeah, yeah. an enormous genocide in, mm. in, in the country in, in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, it also turns out that <laughs> this, it just gets more and more interesting, <laughs> this story, because there's a, a, a church. Now, I'm, I'm going to say highly dodgy. This hasn't gone through right. the lawyers, but right. <laughs> uh, um, it's run by a man called Ubert mm. Angel, uh, who runs seminars on, you know, how to be free of debt, how to make yourself a millionaire overnight, mm. that kind mm. of thing. Oh, sign uh, me up! <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, a lot of the photographs were taken at Angel's uh, premises with mm. his congregation wearing these t-shirts and saying, mm. you know, no to sanctions and, and all the rest of it. And there are some allegations that people were actually paid to wear the t-shirts. Um, and at the same time, there were actually genuine demonstrations in Glasgow by angry black Zimbabweans mostly just saying we wouldn't be allowed to do this at home and what the hell are you doing bringing this huge delegation here? And in Zimbabwe, of course, all of this has been spun. So there's pictures of, of ED with Boris Johnson, with various world leaders. But of course, everybody got those photo opportunities. What he didn't do was convert it into any kind of business opportunity. And when you look at, for instance, the, the president of Zambia, who 
came over. Very small delegation on a paid economy flight uh, and has actually had meaningful meetings about trade deals. And it's quite, quite extraordinary. And I think the main point to take up from this is when you look at uh, what's actually happening on the ground in Zimbabwe, aside from the human rights violations, the economy collapsing and all the rest of it, China is a major investor. And what are they investing in? Coal. Yeah, yes, absolutely. uh, China, which already produces 44% of the world's emissions. Yeah, and I think it's also frightening as well that that investment, they're going to want a return on it, aren't they? So, yes, they'll pour millions of dollars into the country, but they're going to expect a a hefty return from it as well. And Mm. I have to say, when you... When you in in sort of political and human rights terms, when you get that connection between two countries that have pretty dodgy records to put it put it mildly on human rights, doing a sort of cynical deal, it's really worrying. And I think, as I say, certainly with in terms of the return on investment, you know that the people who really won't benefit from it are the ordinary people of Zimbabwe. Yeah, absolutely. They? Even just this week, we've seen um, uh, 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 the leader of, uh, I'm going to call him the chief, the, the chief of an area, um, being uh, arrested because he was protesting about the fact that, that this, his whole village is being relocated to make uh, way for a Chinese diamond mining uh, yeah. operation. So I mean, cynical. it's just appalling. And just yeah. just the fact that, that this was all so misrepresented and that Zimbabwean, uh, the, the Zimbabwean government was so proud of these huge trolleys of booze and hey we're going to have a party and it's just how embarrassing as Zimbabweans say hashtag we need new leaders people are really being encouraged to sign up to register to vote because it's just extraordinary what were they thinking I'm having to say in public relations terms I don't don't think they quite got the memo about what COP26 (laughs) is about it's not about a big jamboree I have to say the the Sun not normally a newspaper you'd you'd bring into the uh, Monocle studios but has a list of the various the sort of uh, uh, the drinks that they got including 20 cans of iron brew, which is got a Scottish... <laughs> Have they never tasted this stuff? I suppose you need a mixer for all that uh, Johnny Walker and stuff, don't you? But... I think to the whole idea, Iron Brew and this picture. Yeah, I mean, lots of interesting stories, though, coming out of COP26. Mm. Uh, Greta Thunberg, of course, getting quite mouthy and and sweary, which is... Greta's growing up. She's going to be in trouble with mum and dad. (laughs) Uh, Lots and lots of demonstrations. But actually, it does seem that there has been genuine progress. Yeah, it does. Uh, Slow progress. But I think, um, given to some extent, again, in public relations terms, was this expectation management did people suggest that uh, not much would be achieved and then when things were less than disastrous that we were making slow progress uh, it's better I mean obviously it's disappointing that um, you know we didn't get much of an input from Russia and China as I say China being the biggest uh, polluter in the world whatever Russia having a fifth of all forestry in the world President Putin was boasting about, I wonder whether it's sort of a threat, unless you play ball with me, there will be less than a fifth of the world's forests in in Russia when we start Mm. getting those chainsaws out. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, you're always going to get the the people who really want to see complete, massive, radical change, and then you're going to get the the people who don't want any change at all. Um, And I think certainly... For most people, it, it you know it was a positive change. I was talking to quite a few companies who have who have stores and stands and a presence that COP26, and I think it's quite encouraging that there has been a, an acceptance by governments, by campaigners, and by businesses themselves that you know businesses are going to have to 
to take a uh, to lead on this to mm. some or not if perhaps not lead but they're certainly going to have to take a, a serious role on the other hand people were sort of complaining that apparently bp and shell weren't invited but then they are some of the biggest investors in green green energy so perhaps that was a mistake but i think that really comes across what really comes across is the fact that this is something that the public is going to have to really push on isn't it we consumers or whatever yeah. voters we're the ones really who having go, are going to have to say to governments and companies not only do we want you to do something about it but if you don't we won't vote for you we won't buy your product so i think that is one of the things that i took away from just watching the uh, cop 26 coverage mm. now one of the countries that's really taking the lead and is hugely invested in in the future of the planet is denmark uh, we did an, inf- uh, 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 an interview this week with the danish climate ambassador mr christiansen uh, and really they've got i think the biggest delegation of top politicians uh, at, at cop i think seven of them in total uh, and denmark is really really, really taking the lead in, in many, many climate issues. And the, the population as a whole is very, very signed up to this. Uh, and I think we should listen to Andrew Tuck now because he's just uh, been in Copenhagen. And, of course, Copenhagen won our uh, quality of life survey, best city in the world to live in. in it's lovely. I'm not surprised. Of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, here's, here's Andrew talking a little bit more about that. We all have those successful friends who are clever, successful and good-looking to boot, but who you still find yourself being lured into giving morale boosts every now and then, while deep down secretly thinking, is this for real? I found myself doing this at a city level this week in Copenhagen. I'd been invited to speak at a conference with the no-messing name of Copenhagen, Cool or Boring. And my input was to explain why we run an annual quality of life survey and what makes great city for monocle readers. I hope you don't mind me speaking on your behalf just this once. And yes, why Copenhagen so regularly takes pole position, including this year. Over the three days I was in the city, I did an interview with the newspaper Bursen, caught up with contacts, spoke with attendees at the event, and again and again, people came over all surprised that pretty little Copenhagen was so well-loved. The tone was reminiscent of a Jane Austen movie, where some damsel coquettishly holds a fan in front of her face and blushes as suitors express their love. Well, at least in this version of my story, I can cast myself as Mr Darcy gone doddery. Trouble is, the evidence is everywhere you look. Michael Solgard, the very engaging and well-regarded culture editor at Boursen, suggested that we start our interview on bicycles. He had his, I borrowed one from the hotel. Over the next hour, we seemed to traverse a large swathe of the city, all on dedicated and well-used bike lanes, and with Solgard acting as both tour guide and unpacker of the city's cycling etiquette. Basically, you seem to have the right of way when you're with him. Solgard was also carrying a bag with him that contained towels and swimming costumes, as on Mondays, he leaves work early to take his granddaughter swimming. You can see why they struggle here. Even the supposedly sketchier parts of town that we glided through, me looking like Miss Marple with a big wicker basket on the front of my two-wheeler, seemed okay to the outsider. Later, over carrot cake in a cafe that sits in the shadow of the Church of Our Saviour, with its famous external staircase coiled around its steeple, Solgard quizzed me about the city's global appeal pretending to be taken back by all the praise while knowing all along that it was all rather incredible. 
When I asked him about problems in Copenhagen, he wondered if there were too many festivals. This became a running theme. People told me how they never work late, how all their universities were picked up by the state, how they had found city centre apartments for a decent rate, how they felt that kids had an easier and safer life here than in many other parts of Europe. Yes, they paid epic taxes and the cost of living for things like food was high. And, as in other cities, there were clearly people who did struggle. But one night I cycled out to a party for Thomas Lücke, friend and founding partner of the celebrated design studio OEO. His birthday drinks were in a restaurant called Ia de Sanchez, which he designed in Norhaven, an old port area being transformed into a vast new residential district. Again, I got there on my bicycle, on lanes edged with ambitious planting, and as I approached my destination, there was a cute boathouse on the water, and people had just finished kayaking. I looked in through the windows of the handsome apartments, families eating dinner on this autumn night. At the base of the new apartment buildings, there was lots of life in shops, cafes, and more restaurants. It was urbanism done well. I parked my bike among all the other bikes that were so modestly secured, and I thought, let's see if anyone dares ask me why Copenhagen ranks so highly in our survey. On the plane back to London, just as on the flight out, many people boarded with no masks on at all or with their hooters uncovered. The pre-flight announcements underlined that everyone had to wear a mask when not eating. The refuseniks, however, carried on staring at their phones with their masks slung like squirrel hammocks under their chins. The crew said nothing. And then there was an announcement that because of a heavy fog, we must also turn off all electrical equipment for takeoff so that there would be no risk of it interfering with the plane's foggy meter. I think that was the technical term. People kept using their phones, though, one man speaking on his even as we took off. A young woman next to me, who was clearly friends with the crew, kept her giant headphones on throughout without a word being said. Back in London, there were posters telling you to mask up on the underground and, standing by the ticket barriers, there were four members of staff. No masks for them. I don't like masks either, but I will happily wear one if I think it makes other people more comfortable. But at this point, it really feels like the game is up and the messaging should change to match the facts. Nobody here really cares, do you? Thank you very much to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. This is Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin, and still with me in the studio is Simon Brook. Uh, Simon, Andrew was talking about masks and travel. Um, I found myself, last night I was going off to present an event which was also televised, and so I had kind of, you know, TV makeup on. Um, and I just found myself looking round the carriage. No one was wearing a mask. And I thought, if I put mine on, I'm going to mess up my makeup. And I didn't do it for the first time. I'm normally so law-abiding about these things. But it is the case when you look around and nobody else is doing it. Well, as Andrew says, you know, do we need to reconsider this? It's so difficult, isn't it? I have to say, because I've been in um, Frankfurt and Paris for work the last uh, when, uh, last month. And in both cases, in Paris, on the metro, even the beggars were wearing masks. Everyone was wearing a mask. It was really noticeable. But as you say, coming back to London, I, my straw poll, I reckon probably about a third of people 
are wearing masks. And I mean, normally I'm a bit of a rule breaker. If I'm told to do something, I don't like to do it. But I don't know what it is. I do feel a compulsion to wear a mask. I'm not worried about my makeup so much, but I have to say, wearing, <laughs> it's I'd like the sweaty thing. Wearing glasses, of course, as soon as you get on fog the train, up, yeah. they fog up exactly. <laughs> and you have to like that. Yeah. Uh, do something about it. But yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? And, and somebody's pointing out to me that actually, of course, the benefit of wearing masks is supposed to be not necessarily for you, but preventing transmission to other people. So, so it's very I selfish could, not to. Well, I was going to yeah. say, you could get on my moral high horse and look around the carriage at these selfish individuals who are, yeah. are not doing something, which is a bit of a nuisance and could uh, ruin your makeup. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> perhaps it's the thing we're supposed to do. I don't know. There's probably a moral question there as much as a sort of uh, a health question, isn't there? Yeah. But, I mean, it's also interesting that, so, for instance, on flights, please keep your mask on, except when eating or drinking. What, does the virus suspend it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And all in that case, just eat and drink very slowly throughout the whole <laughs> flight, and then you really have to do it. Now, one destination that uh, some papers are suggesting we fly off to is Syria, who's reopened for tourism. Yeah, the, the, the Times this morning um, has sun, sea, sand and civil war. Intrepid tourists return to Syria. Um, and uh, so, yes, the, the Syria is opening up for tourists, according to the Times, which has spoken to a company called Lupine or Lupine Travel, uh, which specialises in tours to difficult countries and has the uh, the uh, a, a brochure on its website inviting people for the sum of um, I imagine beginning at one thousand three hundred ninety five pounds for a week visit a week's visit to Damascus to Aleppo. Um, which, uh, as the paper reminds us, until five years ago was divided between government and rebel forces, and the classic site of Palmyra, which was once occupied by the Islamic State. You can also see the Crusader Castle of Crac des Chevaliers and the coastal resort of Latakia. So, um, yeah, it does sound quite appealing, I have to say. The only thing is, I mean, I would love to go because it's a fascinating historic country. It could be quite heartbreaking in a way, couldn't it, as you see all the the poverty and the uh, and these historic sites which just 10 years ago would have been beautifully maintained after centuries millennia even now destroyed by islamic state and then i thought well, yeah it'd be a great thing to go wouldn't it and, and spend money and, and help the economy and tip people generously in cafes and restaurants but i'm not sure is that slightly patronizing i don't i don't know whether there's an element of sort of poverty porn here and visiting a place and going ooh look at that and then getting on a nice comfortable plane and coming back to to your own mm, comfortable disaster country. tourism and i'm not yeah. quite sure how how, how one it, it's it's a it's a moral dilemma. It, it, I think it is as much as a travel dilemma, isn't it? Should should you do it and help out a country which is struggling, also learn something for yourself, perhaps come back and promote Syria for the wonderful culture that it has, and and talk to family and friends about what you've seen and try and sort of rehabilitate the country, or is it an element of the the, the white? crusader, white saviour sort of thing, mm, mm. flying in, to, as I say, to sprinkle some tips to, to local people and say, oh, gosh, it must have been awful for you. So I don't know. But it did make me wonder about other countries you could visit. Um, yeah. Holiday Korea, in yeah. Al-Sababa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Apparently Yemen is quite difficult to get into for <laughs> obvious reasons. Well, frankly, right now, everywhere is difficult to get into. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm not, not travelling, even now that we supposedly can, is it just seems so hard. It, it, it's really... I mean, I don't like sitting on a plane anyway. There's something about being shot through the sky in an aluminium tube that I just don't really enjoy. I'm not frightened about it. I just find it really constricting and unpleasant. And the idea that you would have to have the mask, you know, the fact you do, I've, I've done it coming back from Frankfurt, as I say, and going, having to wear the mask the whole time just adds to that sort of inconvenience. Having said that, I was writing an article just this week from for a, for a, a magazine suggesting that there will be a surge in travel next year and that already, especially business travellers, are itching to get out there and meet people 
face to face. And I was talking to executives who were saying that they've been travelling at the front end of the bus, as it's called, that first class uh, paradise or whatever, where every seat is taken or whatever. So it does look as if people are willing to put up with all those inconveniences. But then the other point people were making to me is that the travel industry itself is going to have to think more carefully about how you handle things like sudden quarantines or, uh, you know, sudden changes in um, COVID requirements or something. So it's not just getting the best price, apparently. Now, it's also thinking, will I be in a good position should, uh, you know, things go horribly wrong and it's not more than a mask that I need. But also going back to what you were saying about it being every individual's responsibility in terms of uh, preventing climate change, you know, should we be increasing our f- carbon footprint by f- by flying? I mean, I think one of the, the main things that we have to look at is increasing rail infrastructure, which the states has just voted on, which is wonderful. But we mm. need to do more here in Britain and in Europe so that there is an alternative. I mean, obviously, you're not going to do it across the Atlantic, but but where we can take the train, we absolutely should. Yeah, absolutely. Or do we just travel less? I mean, do we just say, uh, I would love to go and visit that place, but I'm going to put it off till next year or something? Or, you know, uh, or... But that is the... I suppose that's an interesting example, talking of COP26, where these individual decisions we as consumers and voters have to make, do they actually hurt a little bit? Do you know what I mean? It's all very well applauding Greta Thunberg or whatever, but do we actually then say, I won't buy these clothes, I won't buy convenience food in the supermarket, though it's so easy, and I won't fly to that place I really wanted to go to. I'll either get the train, which is longer and takes more, is more expensive or whatever, or do I just say... I'm going to have to do without uh, for the sake of uh, my fellow human beings. Absolutely. Normally at this time of the year, I'm being booked up for festivals in sort of, you know, Australia and Sri Lanka and various Lovely, places in the wonderful. world. I normally spend February and March doing those foreign festivals. And of course, so now they've, <laughs> <laughs> they've realised that, you know, yeah. they can bring you in on Zoom or whatever. And it's just, you know, and of course, much better for the planet. Although I have to say, I did an event last night, which was partially on Zoom. And it was probably the worst event I've ever done in my life. <laughs> It is that horrible uh, Zoom tech teams experience. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is the problem. You do need to be face-to-face with yeah. people, don't you? Well, thank you, Simon, for being here face-to-face. My and getting pleasure. up early on a Saturday <laughs> and coming into the studio with thank me. You. It's been lovely talking to you. Uh, and that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Laura Hull, and to our producer, Rhys James. I'm Georgina Godwin, and of course, Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.